All right. Well, I'm excited about this morning's uh, uh, message. Um, so, um, but before we get into it, let's let's. Uh, well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to start this morning. And I'm going to. It's going to be like a good old like Bible study for the front half of this message. And then the last half of this message, it's going to be a good old three-point sermon. All right. So get ready for some Bible study and some preaching. All right. So our scripture, our scripture this morning comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard work. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked, Why have you returned so early? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to, to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Let's pray. Uh, loving God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for another beautiful day in Simi Valley. Thank you that um, we're in the midst of this beauty. Uh, of a new morning. We are reminded of your good blessings for us, and we pray that you would bless us now as we uh, turn our attention to your word. Um, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would enter into our hearts and minds to transform us into the people you would have us be. We pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so a little Bible study. We're going to walk through this scripture piece by piece, and I'm just going to start talking about things, and I'm going to try not to um, repeat myself. Um, so we're, we're going to just pull up uh, the next screens, please. Nope. Keep going until it turns blue. There we go. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on specific phrases, and before I actually get into the scripture, I, uh, one of the ways that we... Uh, look at scripture is always keeping in mind the context of a scripture. And it's going to be real easy for you guys to remember this. And that is, remember the two letters BB. Okay? So before today's scripture, Moses was a baby in a basket. B 
BB, right? So many of us know the story of Moses that when he was born, um, the, uh, the Egyptian was, cons- uh, the, I'm sorry, the Pharaoh was concerned about um, the uh, population, the, the Hebrew slave population growing too large and, uh, and uh, chose to do some, popu- uh, some population control by, by infanticide uh, and killing all the male uh, Hebrew slaves, uh, infants. And uh, so, right, so the story is Moses is placed into a basket and sent down the Nile, and, and the uh, Egyptian royal family finds the baby Moses and brings them into their family. So Bibi is the um, bookend on the front end of today's uh, text. Now, on the back end, there's another story, which is, off, is probably well-known by many of us. Again, BB, burning bush. All right. So after this text, right after this is is that um, well-known story of Moses, who is at that point a shepherd. He's out in the desert with the flock, and he sees the bush that is burning and yet not being consumed. And that's where he um, experiences the voice of God, takes off his shoes, holy ground, and all of that. Those are the two bookends, the context of today's scripture. All right, now I'm going to walk through uh, some of the, the, these phrases that are going in here and kind of, uh, kind of draw out a, a little more from today's uh, text. All right, so Moses had grown up. Let's talk about that. How old was Moses at the beginning of today's story, right? We just talked about he, the, literally verses before he's a baby, and the last thing we know, he's in the house of the Pharaoh, the, the royal family, and then the next thing he knows, uh, he's grown up. Well, one of the fun things for me of studying the Bible is, is there are certain texts that are interpreted by the Bible itself. Um, so later in Exodus, Exodus chapter 7, it tells us that when, when Moses returns to Egypt to um, free, uh, by God's help, the, the uh, Hebrew slaves out of slavery, Exodus chapter 7 tells us that Moses at that point is 80 years old. Okay, so, so 80 years old is when he actually returns. So there's, there's hope for all of us, right? <laughs> he, that's when he returns to do the business of freeing the Hebrew slaves. Okay, later in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy tells us that Moses passes away at the ripe old age of 120 years old. So if we start doing the math, what we're looking at is that, that the last 40 years of Moses' life is the whole... Um, um, deliverance from slavery out of Egypt up to uh, crossing the Jordan into the Promised Land. That's the last 40 years of Moses' life. So now we're going to jump. Or I'm, what I'm talking about is how the Bible interprets the Bible. Now I'm going to jump all the way into the New Testament to the book of Acts. I want to, yeah, I'm just going to make sure. Chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we have St. Stephen, who's the first Christian martyr. And St. Stephen is, um, before he is killed and stoned to death, he, uh, Acts chapter 7 outlines this, this speech, this message. He's preaching, essentially, and giving uh, 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 the whole um, history of, of God's salvation to his people. And in that, Stephen is recorded as talking about um, uh, uh, Moses' life at this point that he is 40 years old. So this phrase, after Moses had grown up, is that 12 years old? Is it 15 years old? Is it, according to the Bible, as it interprets itself, we can look at Moses' life as being cut into thirds. The last third we've talked about 
there's the first third. And the first third would have been spent living in the luxury of royal living. Moses was in the royal court, the Pharaoh's household in Egypt. And then there's the middle third. And that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about today. So when I see that phrase, Moses had grown up. Well, how old was he? He's Now, you know, these, these ages and, and timelines are, um, uh, you know, a little challenging to me, I'll be honest. But the ages, the specific ages aren't what's most important to me. It, what's most important to me is understanding the stage in life in which Moses was. He's in this story in the middle stage of his life. He's grown up. He's coming to age. Now, um, it says, the next thing I want to, that's highlighted is he, uh, he went to where his own people, and then later, again, it uses those same words. He, uh, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Twice it tells us that he's identifying with his own people. But what I want to highlight to you and what I want to propose to you is that Moses is actually entering into an identity crisis. He has spent the first 40 years living in royalty, the, the top 1%. Life of luxury, educated as an Egyptian in every way. And, and yet, at this stage, as he enters into this season of life, he is dressed, we'll talk about this later, but he's dressed as an Egyptian. He is, everything about him is Egyptian, and yet he's identifying with those people over there as his own people. And those people are slaves. And so there's a line in the sand. There's the Egyptians, and then there's the Hebrew slaves. And on one hand, he's on this side of that line. Everything about Moses is Egyptian, and yet on the other side of the line, he's looking at those people and identifying with them as his people. He's in an identity crisis. He's not quite sure who he is. We'll, I'll say more. All right, next slide, please. Uh, so Moses was afraid. Moses was afraid. Uh, what, what, okay, what, right, so right, so... Uh, let's talk about more identity crisis of what might be going on in Moses' head. So he, two things about Moses that uh, come to light in today's scripture. And that is, one is he's, he's got a savior complex. Um, and secondly, he has a high sense of righteousness. He has a, a, a high sense of right and wrong. And when he sees something that's wrong... The savior complex kicks in, and he starts sticking his nose into business that actually has nothing to do with him. And so twice so far in the scripture, we see, uh, we see something go wrong, right? He, he, so he's in this identity crisis. He's fully Egyptian, and he sees the situation with the Hebrew slaves, and it's unjust. And there is a slave master who's beating a slave, and he jumps into the situation, and he impulsively take right and he impulsively jumps into that situation and his sense of righteousness is so high and so strong that he's willing to kill a person over it and he knows that it's wrong how do we know that right because he looks this way and that he's making sure that no one will see what he's doing he tries to literally bury the evidence he knows that what he's done is wrong he he's impatient he jumps into a situation that really has nothing to do with him 
He's got stuff going on in his head. Those are my people. They're being trusted. trusted. He's, they're being treated unjustly. He jumps into the situation. He, he, he commits murder, and then he's trying to bury the evidence. Now, imagine this, because as we know, the story is that the next day, right? But before we get there, imagine that night. I can't imagine killing anyone. But imagine that night. Moses goes back to the palace, has dinner with the family, right? Goes to bed. What is he thinking? I've killed someone today. He's staring at the ceiling going, what have I done? So the next day, he goes out. And another situation. Now, this time, it's his own people. And, 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 and they're bickering with each other about something. And it actually, I think, says that one guy's beating the other guy. And again, Moses' sense of righteousness kicks in. Um, this, this savior complex all, uh, kicks in. And then all of a sudden, he's jumping into business that he has nothing to do with. And right in that moment, he is just called, called out. Are you going to do to me what you did to the Egyptian guy yesterday? Shut down. What, I, what I've done must have become known. All right, next slide. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. I, I, this, one, this, this verse I got kind of stuck on this week because <laughs> I kept trying to read if there was any commentary about those words. And there's, guess what? I couldn't find any. So everything I'm going to say is basically speculation. I don't think Pharaoh got word of it and then grabbed his sword and started chasing Moses around the palace. I don't think that's the case. But I do think, perhaps, right, we've heard a lot lately about no one is above the law. And I can't, I, I'm, it just makes me wonder what's going on with Pharaoh, right? Because Moses is like an adopted son in his household. So he, something, Moses has done something terrible. And is there a moral conflict on behalf of Pharaoh? Should justice be done? Should I just let my adopted son get away with it? Does he grab a sword and start chasing Moses? There's no one above the law and I'm going to kill you. No, most likely he has broken the moral law, murdered someone, and most likely ordered his guards, whatever, to arrest Moses. And probably the consequence of that would be being put to death. I, so all of this is speculation because our scripture doesn't say it. <laughs> I'm just kind of thinking it through. So Moses flees, right? And where does he go? He goes to Midian. I want to talk about Midian. Uh, he's committed murder. Does he have a plan? Does he have an escape plan? We don't know. Again, the scripture doesn't tell us. Did he intentionally go, okay, I'm going to hit the road and I know exactly where I'm going. I, I, you know, I'm going to go to Midian. That's where I'm going to go. Or is he literally going on the run, hitting the road and just, uh, have you ever, uh, when I was a young teenager, actually when I was in college, my best friend and I played this game left and right and we were totally bored one day and he said, well, let's go for a drive. We jumped in his car and we played left or right. And I could just say left, and he would turn left. And I could just say right, and he would turn right. Well, we ended up, I, I grew up in Pasadena. We ended up in Ojai at midnight, right? Is Moses playing left or right? Like, is he just going? And he ended up in Midian. Now, let's talk about Midian. The interesting thing about Midian is that Midian is named after the Midianites. And the Midianites are a people that came from the, the youngest offspring of Abraham. So one of the youngest sons of father Abraham was 
Midian. And the Midianites grew out of that, that tribe, that people, that region. And Midian is the region where the Midianites lived. Why? Uh, and, and let me go on. And I didn't highlight this, and I should have. It says, uh, oh, yeah, I did. Where? Good, good for me. Okay, Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian, right? Now, we know, we've read the story this morning already, that this priest of Midian is going to become his father-in-law. Who does the priest of Midian, who do the Midianites worship? This is not idolatry. This is an offshoot of the Jewish faith itself. And so Moses, right, during the first third of his life is born and raised as an Egyptian. Everything, his whole education, everything he is is Egyptian, including worshiping Ra. And yet he's got this um, identity crisis going on. Those are my people. But what does he know of that? And so here's uh, God at work in Moses' life, leading him to Midian, whether it was on purpose or whether it was by accident. And Moses finds his, his life in the presence, you know, finds himself in the presence of a priest of Midian. Hmm. All right. And, and oh, I'll say more. All right. So Moses uh, got up and he came. Uh, oh, wait, wait. So, yeah, yeah. So when he shows up, this is great. Uh, some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue, right? Here he goes again. He's sitting there. Like maybe he's exhausted. He's been on the run. He finds himself sitting on a rock and he's looking down. Maybe he came to the well because he was thirsting himself. We don't know. But there he is, and he sees some action going down, and his sense of righteousness starts boiling up. And once again, he's like, oh my gosh, I've got to take care of this. And he jumps into business that he has nothing to do. It's not his business. He, so three times in this scripture, he is exercising the sense of uh, savior complex, right? Hmm. Very, I, I, I just love this stuff. It's like, whoa. Really interesting. All right. So we already know, go next slide. We already know that when this incident happens, what does he look like? He doesn't look like a Hebrew. He's trying to identify with these people that he knows are his own people, and yet he still identifies, they identify him as an Egyptian, a very unique way of dressing, uh, you know, the shaved head, the whole deal. He looks like an Egyptian. You know, um, and, and it just got me thinking, right? We've seen it in movies. The bad guys break out of prison, right? And the first thing they do is they usually lose the yellow jumpsuit, right? And what they do is they look for the clothing line with the, sun, with the clothes drying, and they steal some clothes so that what? They can blend in. I think there's, I don't know, I just think there's some humor here because here he is on the run for murder. He's out in the middle of the desert, and he's still dressed like an Egyptian. Hello? Anyways, there he is. All right. I, this is why I said earlier, I think there's some serious identity issues going on. He really doesn't know who he is. And he's trying to figure it out. He's got here, God has, right, God has his imprint on him. There is this sense of righteousness. There is this sense of like, like my people and they need help and, and I'm going to jump in and help them. And yet things aren't really in alignment yet. He's still running around looking like an Egyptian. Like who's going to trust him? All right, next screen. I don't even know where we're going now. All right, I don't really know until the screen comes up. <laughs> uh, Moses agreed to stay with the man, right? 
the Bible all over the place is filled uh, and raises the virtue of hospitality. Hospitality was so important, uh, especially in desert cultures where um, your survival may depend on the of being welcomed into someone else's, uh, in a nomadic culture, into their tent. Um, and vice versa. So hospitality is, so, so, you know, here's this Egyptian out of Egypt, uh, obviously lost his way or whatever. Invite him in. He's done a good thing. Invite him in. He's brought in. Now, what I want to point out at this point in the text is there is a time change, and there's actually a, a couple, right? I'm, I'm talking about today's scripture as being the middle of Moses's life, it starts out saying that he had grown up. He's no longer the baby in the basket, and he's grown up. But we see a lot of growing up in these next couple of verses because I don't think all of this happened in one night. Come over for dinner. Oh, you just married my daughter. Oh, and she's pregnant, and we just had a son. Whoa. That's a lot in one night. So at a minimum, what we're looking at is a time change of nine months in one day. Right? Does that make sense? Uh, at least. But most likely, we've got a couple verses here that are kind of trying to summarize maybe multiple years that he earns the trust of, of uh, the family. And, 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 you know, in doing that, he then gets married to the daughter, and then they have their child and so on. Now, uh, so he, uh, birth of a son, and he named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So time has passed. He has his first son, and... It needs to, only, I'm going to highlight it one more time, identity issues. Moses has identity issues. Maybe he's been there for a while. Maybe he no longer looks like an Egyptian. He's sitting at the feet of his father-in-law and maybe learning about the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's, he's growing in knowledge and understanding, and yet, at, when his first son is born, I mean, talk about projecting your issues on your children, right? Whoops. These are dad's issues. These aren't Gershom. Poor Gershom, right? Because he names his son, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. All right, Moses. All right, uh, next slide. Or is that it? No, that's not it. <laughs> now, and then again, now we really get the time change. And during that long period, the king of Egypt died, all right? So things come to pass, and we have this statement that, okay, this is more than just one night or nine months and one day. It's, it's, it's a longer period. All right, so that was the Bible study of today's message. What do you think? Kind of brings it alive, doesn't it? When I started reading it, I was like, oh, this is really cool stuff. But, of course, what does all that knowledge mean if we, we don't apply it? So what does it mean? What lessons can we learn? What ancient wisdom can we apply to 2020 and to our lives? Well, number one on your outline, haste makes waste, right? You've heard that before. Haste makes wait, the, waste. The, the Bible says it in Proverbs another way. One who is quick-tempered displays folly. One who is quick-tempered displays folly. So in March of 2006, there was an associated the Associated Press did a survey about, uh, of uh, over 1,000 adults in America concerning America's impatience. Uh, so a little, a little um, uh, what do you call it, trivia, a little trivia. So how long do you think it takes the average American to be impatient when they're put on hold on the phone? One minute, two minutes, 10 minutes, higher, lower, second. <laughs> Some people are saying seconds. I have no patience for being put on hold for anything. 
Well, the study came out and said that it takes nine minutes before the average American gets impatient. This is wonderful because I thought I was impatient when I heard that, but all of you are like, nine minutes, that's way too long. And, and we're in good company. Apparently, last night's service said the same thing. That's way too long to be put on hold. That's not what the survey says. Nine minutes is the threshold of impatience when being put on hold. Now, would you agree that when we lose our patience, that's often when bad things happen? And there are consequences when we lose our patience. Have you ever lost your patience and said something you later regretted? Have you ever lost your patience and did something you later regretted? Anyone remember this guy, Steven Slater? He was the um, airline attendant for JetBlue. Does that ring a bell? Oh, you'll remember when I start telling the story. This was, a, I, I think, longer, uh, I th honestly, I think it was like four years ago. JetBlue, so he's, he's had, uh, Steven Slater had 28 years as experience as a professional airline attendant. And uh, he was they were flying into, I think it was Chicago, and the plane had landed, and it was taxiing to the gate. We've, uh, we've all been here if we've uh, traveled by plane. And you know how everybody, I don't know, there's just this weird energy once the plane lands because everybody's just, it's like, a, like, like horses at the gate, man. Everybody's waiting to get out of their seatbelt and stand up, and, right? So, so the plane is still uh, taxing, and it's, it's very uh, Pavlo Pavlonian, right? The, the, that thing goes bing, and then everybody goes click, 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 and you get that, that sound, right? There's this mad rush. Well, the, the thing hadn't, go, hadn't gone bing, and this one guy got up, unclicked, and started going overhead in the compartment and pulling out his stuff. So he was in his jump seat, and kind of like, like this, the aisle. He's sitting there watching this and says, sir, can you please remain seated until, and the guy basically ignored him. Okay, well, it his, it's his job to like, tear, take care of things. So plane is still taxiing, hasn't gotten to the gate. So he jumps out of his um, jump seat, and he goes, sir, can you please sit down and as he's doing this and putting his hand up to close the, the thing, the guy, intentionally or was it an accident? We'll never know. Takes, and by the way, who's the real impatient person in this story? You figured it out. Anyway, so he grabs his bag, and as he's pulling it down, whacks Steven Slater in the head. At which point, Steven Slater loses it. He goes, to the, he goes to the mic and just starts berating the guy on the mic in front of everybody on the plane. And then he goes back to that little uh, attendant area, right? And he gets a beer, and he goes to the exit door, and he pops it open, and that little slide goes down, and he cracks the beer, and he basically, you know, and probably in a, I'm saying in a much nicer way, he goes, take this job and shove it, and he jumps out and slides down. And he, you know, in some ways, he's an American folk hero, right? Yeah, you show them, buddy. He lost his patience, too. And guess what? There were consequences. 28-year career, he's taken into custody, he's charged with criminal mischief, reckless endangerment, and criminal trespassing. One who is quick-tempered displays folly. Haste makes waste. How about you? You ever lose your patience? Acted impulsively? Moses acted impulsively as well. His impatience, his acting on his, um, acting impulsively led to murder and led to a 40-year detour 
in his life. A rushed decision is likely to be a wrong decision. Moses' shame, Moses' guilt, right? Moses' anger, maybe at the situation, maybe anger turned inward, which is actually another way of saying depression. Maybe Moses' depression sent him into and kept him in hiding for 40 years, a 40-year detour. Understandably, Moses sidelined himself. He disqualified himself. Would it be fair to characterize this as a self-imposed isolation, a self-imposed solitary confinement, a self-imposed exile? Ever feel like that? Ever disqualified yourself because of the shame that you feel about something you've done? Have you ever disqualified yourself for the guilt or the depression that you're in? A self-imposed exile. It can be a dark place. It can be a dark place. Let's move on. Number two on your outline. Patience is a virtue. Patience is a virtue. The same proverb, the other half of the same proverb, whoever is patient has great understanding. Forty years of self-imposed exile. Moses is in a dark place. If you were here in worship a couple weeks ago, I was talking about how life, right, is, is like a roller coaster, and we have these peak moments in our lives, and life is great, and there are those dips in life, and, you know, we want our lives to be like this, but there are times when we have high points and really low, dark points. And it got me again, reflecting on Moses' life in this middle season of his life, the dark place that he's in, and it got me thinking about Psalm 23, well-known and common, uh, commonly known to many of us. The, sh- the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. That's a high point. He makes me lie down in green pastures. High point. He leads me beside quiet waters. High point. He refreshes my soul. High point. He guides me along the right, righteous paths as I've memorized it. High point. For his name's sake. Wonderful. High point. Even though I walk, I've memorized it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this version, even though I walk through the darkest valley, hmm, I think it's right there. Valley, dark. This is a low point. I will fear no evil for you are with me. I'm going to jump ahead. In the presence of my enemies, high point? No, low point. In the presence of my enemies, surrounded, about to experience defeat, maybe already imprisoned, captured, surrounded in the presence of my enemies, you prepared a table for me. So as we look at Psalm 23, we've got to ask ourselves, do we believe that God is with us in the darkest valleys of our lives? Let's talk about this question. This question, do we believe that God is with us in the darkest valleys of our lives? It's not a feeling question. Because I've had some dark valleys in my life, and in those darkest moments of my life, if someone said, do you feel like God is with you? I'd be like, no. Maybe it's an expression of our own human brokenness, but in our darkest moments of our lives, right, people say, it feels like God has abandoned me. So it's not a feeling question. Is it a logic question? Let me explain. It's a little confusing. When it, when it says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil because you are with me. It's, it's a little confusing, and I'll tell you why. 
couple couple phrases and you'll get the point. Sweet and sour pork. Military intelligence. Jumbo shrimp. Like, right? It, this is one of these things like you go, wait, I don't quite get it. Here's one. Bitter sweet chocolate. Is it sweet or is it bitter? Like, I don't get that. And so we look at these verses in Psalm 23, this darkest valley, you are with me. In the presence of my enemies, you set a table for me. I don't quite get that. It's not a feeling question. It's not a logic question. It is a faith question. Do we believe that in our darkest valleys, God can be there with us? The bitter, the darkest valley, and the sweet God is with us there. God is never going to allow a moment of our lives to be wasted. And that was, and we see this in Moses' story. He's committed murder. He's on the run. He's in self-exile out in the middle of the desert in Midian. And yet, in the same way, God has guided him. I mean, he's going through his own identity crisis, and yet God guided him into this place where there is a legacy of, of Jewish faith. He's going to start learning what that means. He's sitting at the table with a priest of Midian as his father-in-law. Forty years is going to rub off on Moses, and I'm going to say that it's uh, again, I'm speculating, but I'm going to say that it's all head knowledge. I think some people come to faith and have an experience, and then they backfill with learning what that experience meant. Other people learn a lot about the faith, and then they have an experience. And I think that's true for Moses, because the next chapter, right? The next, the book, the bookend, BB, the burning bush. I think that's the experience. He's learning, he's learning, he's learning, and then all of a sudden he has an experience of God where God speaks to him. That's the learning experience. God never allows a moment in our lives to be wasted, no matter what the darkest valley is, especially when God can use the moment, especially when God can transform the moment, especially when God can redeem the moment for our own sake of well-being and for the sake of God's own glory. There's a lesson to be learned um, (laughs) from the American soldiers that were captured in North Vietnam in what was, it's famously kind of been coined the Hanoi Hilton. Have you heard of this? Amazing story I learned this week that while they, while those prisoners were there in some of the worst conditions imaginable, um, they found a way to survive. And what they started doing, one of, they don't know who, but basically this idea came alive amongst these prisoners in the Hanoi Hilton, that they weren't in the Hanoi Hilton as we understand it. They were actually in the University of North Vietnam. And they started, those people who knew a second language started teaching other prisoners a second language. And, And some people who had maybe learned an instrument in their childhood started practicing in their imaginations playing their guitar or practicing the keyboard or piano in their minds. One soldier it's, uh, said uh, he, he practiced, <laughs> you'll, some of you like this, he, he, he practiced playing golf in his imagination. Now guess what? 
when he was ultimately liberated and returned to America, he actually became a competitive golfer. So it paid off. Uh, what else did they do? They, they, I think this is very beautiful. Um, did they have a Bible? No, they didn't. But for those who had memorized verses, they started to collectively put together a Hanoi Hilton. <laughs> it's like the Gideon's Bible. The Hanoi Hilton Bible of all of the verses that collectively they had memorized. And then once they had remembered all the verses that they could, together they started to memorize all of the Hanoi Hilton Bible. This is the point. <clears throat> they could have despaired. But instead, they patiently endured, you know, exercised resilience, and all of that prepared them for their future hope. In the midst of life's setbacks, in the midst of life's disruptions, God does not waste a moment preparing us for and leading us towards growth and leading us to new things. Isaiah 43, verse uh, 19. This is, uh, Isaiah is a prophet. He's speaking to the nation of Israel, but he might as well be speaking to us today, where God in the first person says, see the Lord says, I am doing a new thing. Now this new thing springs up. Do you not see it? I am making a way in the wilderness. I am bringing streams of life to a wasteland. Which leads me to the last point. Number three, divine alignment. Divine alignment. Um, you probably all noticed it and then completely forgot that there's a bicycle right here. <laughs> So let's talk about, so this is my bicycle. Believe it or not, I bought, actually it's not my bicycle anymore. I gave it to my son. But I bought this bicycle for me in 1992. And uh, that, we call it BC, right? Before children. Um, and uh, I, back then I had more time. And so I did a lot of cycling, mountain biking, road biking, and such. This was my first mountain bike. This bike and I have spent a lot of quality time together. Um, mountain biking is, is uh, challenging, right, because the terrain is constantly changing. Um, you're going up hills, down hills, single track, mountain, you know, fire roads, all this kind of stuff, rocks, sand, um, mud. And it constantly requires you looking ahead and then changing, okay, the gears. So I don't want to patronize anyways, but to make sure we all know how to bike like this works. 18-wheel, uh, 18-gear uh, bike, you've got the sprockets, uh, and you've got the chain. And the bike works when the chain is in alignment with the sprockets. That's where the power is. When you start cranking, that's where the power is. Now, like any vehicle, you probably have a car like this, right? You, no matter how time, you've got a car that maybe veers to the right. And no matter how many times you take it into the garage to fix it, it veers to the right. Those things that just drive you. Or you have a light in your car that continues to come on, and you take it to the garage, and no matter how time, many times they look at it, the light still stays on, and there's nothing wrong with your car. Ugh, it's just so frustrating. So let me tell you about the frustration of this bike. Uh, this is called the derailleur, and it shifts the chain from one sprocket to another, and it's controlled by my thumb over here. Now, here's the deal. If I was patient... If I treated this bike nicely and I was pedaling and I saw something come up and I gently hit the derailleur, like it would change gears nicely and we all got along. But 
it was never like that. It was always like, I'm coming down a hill, or I'm going up a hill, or I see some soft sand like in a riverbed, or my buddy Kirk would go flying past me, and because I'm competitive, I want to be in a smaller gear so that I could crank and try to catch up with him, right? And in that moment of impatience, and I'd hit the, I'd just throw my thumb on the button, and the chain would go, whoo, and just fly off. It happened all the time, and it would drive me crazy. Because I, I, oftentimes I was hurting myself. Like, like, I just came to a complete stop. I would crash, um, right? And then I had to deal with the frustration because when the chain wasn't in alignment with the sprocket, everything came to a complete stop. Got it? All right, let's talk about divine alignment. Divine alignment. Bookends. We've got... Baby in a basket, burning bush. Inside of the structure of the scripture, there's actually two more bookends. On the front end, right, I'm telling you, Moses has this inner passion to lead. Maybe he thinks he's going to inspire a slave rebellion or something, right? He jumps into business and he looks like, right, all of the things I've talked about. And how do they react? How do the, the Hebrew slaves re react? Who are you? Like, why are you trying to help us? And maybe that reaction comes from a place that they are absolutely comfortable in their slavery. It's not so bad, this slavery thing in Egypt. We've got a roof over our head. We're being fed. Yeah, every once in a while the boss gets out of line, but it's pretty comfortable. At the back end of this, the, 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 the inner bookend, right? Things are out of alignment. Moses isn't prepared to lead them. He doesn't even know who he is. And the people themselves, right? So here's, here's the chain, right? Here's Moses, and he doesn't even know who he is. And here's the sprocket over here. And the Hebrew people really aren't in the mood to be liberated yet. They're out of alignment. So 40 years goes by. Meanwhile, Moses is being developed. He's growing. He's becoming who he's meant to be. And it's a long time to get there. And over here, the Pharaoh has passed away, the one who wants to put him to death. And a new Pharaoh's in charge. You know, there's a new Pharaoh in town, right? And, and the people who were so comfortable 40 years ago are now living in misery. They're crying out to God in their misery. And all of a sudden, things begin to come into divine alignment. God's timing. I'll be honest with you. There have been times where people kind of like flippantly say, oh, you know, God's timing. <laughs> and I, it just frustrates me because you know what? I, I, I'm on hold for nine minutes and I'm impatient. But divine alignment. Maybe there are times in the darkest seasons, the darkest valleys of our life, that there are things that God is doing that we have no... like. Moses couldn't control the circumstances of what was going on in Egypt. He couldn't control that. Meanwhile, he had to grow himself. And maybe God is calling us in those seasons of our lives to have faith, to trust that God is doing things that we cannot control, and that in the right moment, things will come into divine alignment. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul encourages us. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
God prepared in advance for us to do. Whatever our present situation is, God is going before us. And there are good works that God wants to do in our lives for our own well-being and for the blessing of others and for the sake of his glory. God is going before us. And we are God's handiwork in that. Let's pray.